morning. This is Enid Cho bringing you Friday's Money for Nothing on Radio 3. China's Amazon, JD.com, rose 10% on its first day of trading to US dollars 2090 a share after it saw strong demand for its 1.78 billion IPO. The share price slipped 17 cents on profit taking in after hours trading. HP is cutting another 11,000 to 16,000 jobs on top of the 34,000 already announced. Taken together, that's up to 16% of its total workforce. The world's second largest PC maker announced disappointing second quarter results and its forecasts weren't, weren't too bright either. Here's CEO Meg Whitman saying that investors should not be surprised by the job cut, as this is just a continuation of a program that began in 2012. So you'll recall that this um, program goes back to FY12, and we've actually increased the number of people who will leave the company a couple of times during this program. And actually, um, on earlier calls, we actually signaled that there might be more opportunity. And I'm actually not disappointed at all with how we're doing. We just see more opportunities to lower our cost structure, streamline our operations without impairing our our effectiveness. In fact, making us a more nimble and decisive company. Well, that's HP's Mac Whitman trying very hard to sound upbeat after announcing disappointing results which sent shares down 2.3% before market closed. That's because the results came out um, early by mistake. She went on to say that the cuts will be made across all business units and all geographies. There may be um, worrying developments from Thailand, the Koreas, Xinjiang to Ukraine yesterday, but US and European stocks still rose as the appetite for risk returned. The S&P 500 was up 0.2% to 1,894. The Dow rose 10 points to 16,543. NASDAQ was up more than half a percent to 4,154. In Europe, the Eurofirst 300 rose 0.1% and both the DAX and the CAC in France managed a 0.2% gain despite lackluster findings by the HSBC flash PMI surveys. All eyes now in Europe is on the um, election, the European election at the weekend, the first since the debt crisis. Here in Asia, the Nikkei has opened up 67 points or 0.47% to 14,404 points. The Australian ASX is up 3 points to 5,460. And um, the Seoul Cosby is down 3 points to 2,012. That's probably because of um, the shelling incident um, between North and South Korea yesterday. Currency-wise, the yen is falling for the second day. It's now trading down 0.2% at 101.79 against the dollar. Um, coming up in the show, we've got... Um, Four guests, uh, busy, busy show on a Friday. Um, hope you'll find that um, all very entertaining. Um, investor, investment advisor Peter Lewis is here with me in the studio. He's going to be talking about the global markets and recent tensions. Uh, there's going to be a new survey announced on um, high net worth individuals and how they feel about the markets. And Danny Hicks, a regular contributor, is going to talk about the business of sports and what's been happening there. And um, we are going to talk to a crazy, um, no, I mean a brave man who is going to raise money by swimming all the way to Macau. 
But first, uh, 10-year Treasury yield rose again by about two basis points to 2.55% overnight. But people are still baffled by the bond market bull run when confidence in the economy is rising and rates are expected to go up sometime next year. Well, Stephen Roach, former chairman of Morgan Stanley Asia and now a senior fellow at Yale University, told Bloomberg earlier that it's because QE never worked. You know, the Fed mistakenly believes that QE is the answer to the balance sheet recession, and it's not. The answer to the balance sheet recession is really in dealing with the problems that are still impeding balance sheets, like excess household debt, uh, excess mortgage debt, uh, and inadequate saving. If we focused our policy and uh, arsenal on those issues, the consumer recovery, uh, the balance sheet repair would accelerate. What does QE do? It makes a few wealthy people a lot happier. It doesn't deal with middle-class balance sheet problems. Well, that's economist Stephen Roach speaking on Bloomberg earlier. Let's say hello now to our first guest, Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Investing. Welcome to the studio. Good morning. Nice to be here. Now, a number of events yesterday... Um, all within 24 hours, gave great cause for alarm. First, the military in Thailand has staged a coup. It's official now. It's now a coup. And kicked out the caretaker government. North Korea shelled South Korea, uh, well, in in, in disputed waters. And uh, more violence in Xinjiang, where a car bomb attacked, uh, uh, killed 31 people. Fighting flaring up in Ukraine again ahead of this Sunday's election. Um, So even before yesterday's event, I was asking another guest, uh, guest Ben Collett on... um, the show whether investors can afford to ignore all these political tension that's um, threatening to boil over all over the place. So what's your view? Well, well, they're certainly building. I mean, we had in many ways last year uh, an investment climate that was really very much free of any sort of political mm. risk. And, and that's turned around quite quickly this year because there's flashpoints appearing um, sort of all over the globe and, and all over this region as well. And we've seen, you know, a, a coup once again in, um, in Thailand. I mean, this is now since 1932 in Thailand when we had the end of the absolute monarchy. The they've 11th. had a lot of they've had a, a lot of coups, it's haven't a, they? Sadly, some a say 12, fact. some say 19. Yeah, there's, well, there's been 11 successful coups and 23 military governments since 1932, <laughs> um, and it, it's a tragedy, really. It's a tragedy. But do you think that's why a lot of people are sounding a bit blasé about it? They say, oh yeah, another coup. Well, maybe partly, but it's certainly you know it's sad for the people of Thailand, and it's a, it's a tragedy for democracy because, you know, what, what really this is all about, it's about a minority who don't accept the results of a democratic election. And once again, we have, um, you know, the army stepping in to try and preserve, you know, the, uh, the, the, the sort of the, the political elite. But it, it, it's sad for the, for the country because it's having a big effect on the economy. We've seen GDP shrink 0.6% in the mm. first quarter. Foreign investment is plummeting and it has a big impact on tourism, which is a major part of the, um, the, the Thai economy. So for Thailand, it's, it really is bad news all around. The uh, stock market, the SET closed, um, well, it was up nearly 0.2% yesterday. I think it's because the coup was announced just after market close. The BART um, is um, also recovering somewhat today, um, up from 32.6 to the dollar to 32.56 now. Um, but um, investors, I suppose, should look to history to get a sense of what may happen, given we've had coups. We had the last coup in 2006, and it took about four months for martial law to be lifted, and um, over a year before the military, having cancelled an earlier election, allowed another one. 
Um, so it may be a long way before we get some clarity on what where Thailand is heading next. It, it could well be because this has been going on for a while now, and, and the, 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 the the crux of the problem is that um, there is a, a, a vocal and, and large part of the population, maybe a minority, but still a big minority, that just simply do not want to have any more a democratic process because it hasn't delivered the outcome that they want. And and you know you put that in contrast to say, for example, India, where we've just seen maybe one of the most successful elections in the world, you know, in a vast country where there's mm. been a very, very well, peaceful... Well, I mean, there, there, there are people who um, have good reasons to say that um, Thailand's democracy isn't a real healthy democracy. Yeah. And, and the other thing about Thailand that may change everything, it may force us to throw out all the rule books about Thailand, is the king's health, isn't it? I mean, yes. he's 86. He's been in <clears throat> ill health for a long time. I mean, if he dies, then, whoa... That would be quite unimaginable. Well, it, it was interesting that, you know, yesterday when the, uh, the the new military government tore up the constitution, the one part that they specifically mm. said that they didn't um, revoke was the, the part relating to the monarchy. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. the only part and of the, the constitution. And the military has always been very much a royalist. Okay. Yeah, and and you know the the king of Thailand is a hugely respected figure and is you know uh, you know the really the the stability the only part of you know stability that we've seen in Thailand over the past sort of uh, decades. Now India, um, India's market cap has now leapt past Australia to become the tenth biggest market in the world, and it's all because of Modi's victory. Now I've, there's been a lot of <laughs> a lot of people trying to describe the significance of Modi's victory, and it's getting more and more over the top, right? So Martin Wu, for example, in his FT column said, it's not that wrong to call it the most momentous election in world history, except he reckoned the elections of Abraham Lincoln and FDR were perhaps more significant. (laughs) Um, You um, are also... um, um, very enthusiastic about uh, Modi's factory, uh, victory, I, I believe. Well, I, I see it as significant because mm. it's one of those elections that, that comes along rarely in that the, the result potentially, and we're talking about potentially here because he hasn't done anything yet, but it could change not just the economy of, um, of India, but it, it could and probably needs to change the whole way government itself works in India and, and politics. And, and, you know, and government and politics may not be the same um, again. And, and the, the election that maybe I compare it to, because it's maybe the first election I was ever in, in could vote in, was the election of Margaret Thatcher in the UK in, in mm-hmm. 1979, where in some ways there were, there were similarities. You know, people were very disillusioned with the direction the country was going in. There was a strong feeling that the country could do better, and they turned to an outsider, this grocer's daughter, to basically try and lead them out of the wilderness. And we have in India a similar thing. I mean, economic growth over the last 10 years has been impressive in India. It's averaged about 7.5%, but it has slowed sharply over the past three years. It hit a decade low of about 4.5% a year or so ago. Inflation is still quite high, and the country... Excuse me, it needs to create a lot of jobs. It needs to create about 10 million jobs a year just to absorb all the young people who are coming into the workforce. And and if you look at, despite this decade of strong economic growth, GDP per head in in India is a tenth of that in the US and still half of that in China. So there is a feeling that, yes, things have been good, but 
we can do better. And, and this is why I think they have turned to, you know, ironically, uh, um, the son of a grocer again, just like they did in, uh, in the now, UK in 1979. Okay, obviously, you know, there are uh, or were and remain a lot of criticism about uh, Thatcherism and her time in the UK, which mm-hmm. we will not have time to no, go into this long, show. Long um, and Modi himself is a controversial figure as well. Yes. There have been charges of crony capitalism, i.e. he's not uh, no better than anybody else um, because, you know, there have been uh, business people like uh, Gautam Adani who um, managed to get land cheaply in Gujarat and then made a lot of money subletting it basically and also this talk that he's sort of overblown taking credit for Gujarat's growth when it was uh, well his predecessors who did a lot of the work but um, so let's talk about the market though I mean it's gone up what about 25% in a year and um, um, so do you think that it has room to go much further but or or do we need for it to get any more new momentum, we need to see something concrete in the we first hundred days of movement. We need to see some concrete things because one of the things about charismatic leaders is that they lose their shine very quickly because unless they can now really go and deliver and, and make sure that the lives of ordinary Indians does improve in the way that is promised, um, he'll find in a couple of years' time he could be you know, unpopular very quickly. So there's a, a number of things he's got to do. I mean, what people want to see is they want to see it easier to invest in the country. They, we want to have regulated sectors more deregulated so that foreign companies can come in and, um, and, and compete. We want to see employment reform so it's easier, for example, for, for women to enter the workforce. There needs to be some of the state-owned assets need to be sold and taken private, financial markets liberated, a whole slew of things that, that need to be done. The problem is that these things don't happen overnight. They, they take time to implement. Um, and the Congress Party knew full well what needed to be done, but just couldn't didn't do manage. It. As a coalition, it, it was very difficult. Now, he has a majority, so an absolute majority here. He can implement these, these reforms, but they will take time. And, and the question will be, will people have um, enough patience? And again, I turn to you know, the, the UK in 79. Within two years, Thatcher was very unpopular. Um, you know, and she was almost, had it not been for a war, which, you know, Modi can't afford to have in India, you know, she would have been voted out probably. Well, so. it's encouraging that at least he's, um, in, in, he's made the, uh, the uh, gesture of inviting Pakistani yep. officials to attend his inauguration. Now, very quickly, where do you see the Chinese and Hong Kong markets heading for the rest of the year? Well, the, the China market is very dependent on one thing at the moment, and that's the state of the property market. Um, and property, you know, the, the, the real estate sector is maybe 20% of, um, of, of output in China. And, you know, according to some estimates, it may be up to about 80% of the financial system. And we're starting to see declines now in property prices across the board, even in tier one um, cities. Some of the numbers that came out earlier this week were, were pretty depressing. New housing starts contracted 15% year on year. Land sales are plunging. This is important because as much as the Chinese government wants to try and um, take the froth out of the market and as much as it needs to reform the shadow banking system and get control of, of credit because credit growth in China has exploded. C- credit growth is outpacing GDP GDP so what do you think will be, what do you think is a likely trigger in the near term for the market to um, react quite strongly? 
to these fears. Well, on, on another the, set of bad housing data yes, next month. I, I think housing data is the thing because you know, the, the Chinese economy, in many ways, has been fueled by credit, um, and the problem with that is that when the crunch comes, it tends to slam the brakes onto GDP growth. When you when you've sort of bought your economic growth through credit expansion, and the one thing that could really bring accelerate any potential credit crunch is the housing market. So that's the one thing to watch over the coming. So um, how sort of how far can it for an earlier guest said forty or even fifty percent? We're talking about the Asia market. The, the the housing market itself. Uh, in no, China? the uh, Asia equities market. Well, I, I think you know across the globe, I, I think equity markets are extremely overvalued, um, and you know they they are totally dependent upon central banks pumping money into the markets. We're seeing that in Japan, we're seeing that in China, in the U.S., and we're now seeing the withdrawal of that stimulus. And these markets have now got to stand on their own two feet. And and uh, and you know my fear is that you know that the, the markets can't do that without this. You know, without this input of, you know, free money in effect, or maybe not free mm. money, but this injection from the so, central banks, it's going to, um, you know, it's going to be very difficult for the so markets to sustain these levels. Still looking pretty gloomy. Well, thank you very much. I'm afraid we've run out of time. I'll ask you about your projections for the markets again next time you're on the show. Thank you very much. And um, that's Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Investment. And let's say hello now to James Tan, Managing Director of Friends Provident International. Welcome to the studio, James. Hi, good morning, Gineth. Thanks for having me. Now, um, confidence among high net worth investors in Hong Kong has hit its lowest ebb in 18 months, according to a survey you've just conducted in Hong Kong and Singapore. Um, so let us, um, can you just talk me through the main findings of the survey first? Well, there are a couple of things that's happening. Um, obviously, that's uh, the, the macro sort of uh, economic situations, um, economy in China, some of the unrest in, uh, in, in Ukraine with Russia, uh, Japanese economy, lots of things that's happening that's possibly causing some of the, uh, uh, the issues uh, that's causing some of the financial insecurities with some of these, um, these affluent customers. And as a result uh, of that, we see that the overall um, falling of, uh, of confidence in the market for, for this quarter. Um, and um, and how do you how do you define high net worth individuals in the survey anyway? Is it still the one million US dollar in investable assets? Well, test? in our survey, we uh, we consider uh, we, we talk to affluent and aspiring affluent customers. So for Hong Kong, is investable assets of uh, half a million Hong Kong and above, and for Singapore, is eighty thousand Sing dollar and above in terms of investments. Right. So, okay. Now, tell us why do you think? Um, what is the significance of the survey for the rest of us? You know, as low net worth individuals, <laughs> why should we care what they think? Well, you know, I mean, there are a couple of things. I think what we're looking at is just the overall trend of how things are happening, and we know that in Asia um, there is an inflow of wealth into the region. So, how the affluent investors are reacting to some of these situation is an interesting trend and an indicator. So, we do see that. Um, this uh, this uh, survey that we had compared to last survey, a couple of things have changed. So um, the top three uh, reasons for saving in Asia, for example, uh, remains to be A, saving for retirement, B, saving for emergency or rainy day. Uh, and the third one, which is quite different in Hong Kong and Singapore, in Hong Kong is actually saving for to buy a property, hmm. which is quite consistent with what sort of uh, Peter was saying in terms of the property market and, and the situation there. And what about in Singapore? Is it? Is it yeah, Singapore is actually. It very the, yeah, Singapore. The third the reason for savings is actually for medical expenses. Oh, really? Yes, yes. 
And um, and also, um, I think having had a quick look at the survey, they're also mm. more bullish about gold in Singapore than in, in Hong Kong. Yes, uh, perhaps I think it's, it's probably sort of more the regional flavor in Southeast Asia, and, and obviously in Singapore, there's a higher uh, Indian population, for example, with nine percent uh, compared with less than I think less than one percent in, uh, in in Hong Kong. Mind you, I mean a lot of Indians in India are selling gold because they right. think that um, uh, gold price is going to mm. fall, and um, mm. even as Modi is expected to ease gold import curbs further. Right. Um, now, so, um, the, so overall, where do you think the safe havens are? Well, you know, obviously we will tell our um, clients uh, to talk to advisors. I mean, every investor is, is very different. Uh, for, from our perspective, FPI, obviously we're actually a, a licensed uh, Hong Kong company, but also our headquarters is in the Isle of Man, which is, uh, again, a very uh, highly regulated jurisdiction. So it really depends on the individual, and we'll encourage them to, to talk to the advisors. Okay, thank you very much for sharing the survey with us. That's James Tan, Managing Director of Friends Provident International. Our next guest is Danny Hicks, AFP's sports editor. Good morning, Danny. You've got a juicy bit of gossip for us from the sports world, and it's not the McElroy Wozniacki split up. <laughs> no, and it's nothing to do with football, because I thought we are going to be snowed under with <laughs> the World Cup coming up That's unusual for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, with the World Cup coming up next month, I thought we'd concentrate on that then. No, we've got the second uh, tennis major of the year, the second Grand Slam tournament, the French Open, starting on Sunday at Roland Garros, famous Roland Garros site in France, and while the, the, you know, the, the eyes will be focused on the court, can Rafael Nadal win his ninth French Open, uh, will Serena Williams sweep all before her again? Off the court, there's a bit of a story going on that's uh, maybe going to overshadow uh, the action uh, on the clay of Roland Garros, in, and that's the uh, the plans to expand uh, Roland, Gar- Roland Garros site have uh, have come under fire again. It's the smallest of the venues for the Grand mm. Slam tournaments, and uh, it. You know, it was built in 1928, and they're desperate to kind of drag it kicking and screaming into the 21st century. So, what, century are, what are the expansion and, and plans, roughly? The facilities there. But the plans, which look great, uh, encroach on a very famous bot- botanical gardens next door, the Gardens Doi Toy, and uh, there's a huge amount of opposition to uh, to the expansion plans. And uh, it looked like uh, after an appeal uh, at the tail end of last year, everything was going to go ahead smoothly. But now the family of the architect who designed these gardens, uh, 150, and specifically the, the great-grandson of the architect have got involved. There's an internet campaign against the expansion, and it's all blowing up into a huge so what, row. So were they going to... Were they- going to knock down a lot I can't of... can't hear you. I'm sorry. sorry can, you, can you hear me now? Um, okay, I've got you, you now. Sorry. You're back. Thank sorry, you. Sorry, uh, I so, couldn't hear um, you then for did, a moment, what, So the, would the plan involve knocking down a lot of the old structures? Well, it would, it would, it would involve... Uh, encroaching onto the site of these botanical gardens. There's some very, very famous historic greenhouses there, housing uh, you know, kind of 10,000 important specimens of plants from all over the right, world. Right, I'm not surprised that and, there's such uh, strong objections then. But so it's not they, to do with money? It, 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 it is to do with money because the fr- <laughs> Roland Garros will generate a huge amount of money once they can expand the but site. But what about the cost of the development? The cost of development is huge. $400 million they're looking at, plus probably the longer it gets delayed. But the point is they, the plans uh, do not encroach on the historic part of the site and they've promised to build new greenhouses to replace ones that would be torn down, but they only date back to the 1980s or so. However, you know, the environmentalists are up in arms about this and um, this one could run and run. The, the so original plans if, were to get this done what if, by about What will two happen to the French Open if they don't um, go through with the plan? Well, there could be a threat to it, actually, you know, in years to come. This won't happen at the moment, but... Uh, 
there are parts of the world, this part of the world, China, Asia, the Middle East, Dubai, places like that, who would dearly love to have a Grand Slam tennis tournament, and they're going to start bidding and developing sites, as we know, and Singapore is, start, uh, is opening a huge uh, sports complex soon. There could be pressure coming on the on the World Tennis Federations to uh, to move it in years to come. If Roland Garros can't kind of drag the facilities up to the standard of the other three Grand Slams, that's the real danger. I'm surprised there hasn't been talk already about having a major event in Asia, given how you know global money is flowing and also China's emergence as a pretty significant tennis power. There has been talk of maybe creating a fifth major, but the the historic s- situation of both in golf and tennis of four majors, I, hmm. I think. Uh, you know, there isn't room for a fifth one on the, what is a fantastically packed calendar at the moment. However, as I say, in, in years to come, this is something that might get looked at. And, uh, you know, the t- there's a big fight. The Tennis Authority is desperate to get this redevelopment going and really improve the facilities there at Vo- Roland Garros for players and spectators alike. And you've got the environmentalists, on the other hand, who've got a very good case, I must say, who are saying, no, we won't let it happen. Great. Thank you very much, Danny, for the update on um, the business of sports. So that's um, that was Danny Hicks with sports, and now more sports. Simon Holiday is Senior Development and Training Manager at law firm Norton Rose Fulbright here in Hong Kong. And tomorrow, he's going to start swimming from the western edge of Lantau Island to Haksa Beach in Macau. The reason why he's doing this is he wants to raise awareness over how filthy the water surrounding Hong Kong is. Um, I believe we've managed to ring through to his mobile. He's just doing a recce over in Lantau this morning. Are you there, Simon? Hello, Enid. Good morning, Simon. Really glad you can join the show just before this um, grueling journey that you're going to make. So you, the, the reason you're doing it is that you know the sea is filthy. That's part of your message. And it's, um, you know it's jellyfish season. And the, you're going to be swimming through really busy shipping lanes to Macau. Are you quite mad? <laughs> well, um, we, we're on a we're on a forty foot catamaran at the moment on on our way um, through the West Lama uh, West Lama Channel, and we're having a look at the weather conditions um, ahead of ahead of tomorrow, and it's looking pretty good. We've seen the odd bit of bit of litter, no jellyfish um, as yet, but I'm sure when I um, when I jump in the water um, a bit later, we'll have a better idea of um, of what the what the challenge will, will look so like. So, how are you going to protect yourself from uh, from stings or or, or sea traffic and and also the water quality? Well, I, I mean, I, I could take I could take the odd jellyfish um, sting. I've, I've had a few had a few on the face in in, in training. Um, it's yeah, it's just whether it, it's just it's just how many there are and and. If it continually happens, then then we have got a problem. But um, but it's more um, weather conditions that I'm most um, concerned about. Unfortunately, it looks like um, looks like we've got a bit of a weather window um, over the weekend mm-hmm. after the couple of weeks of, of poor weather we've had. So, how um, long do you think it's going to take you? I think it's going to take around 12, 12 hours. 
non you're going to be swimming non-stop for 12 non hours non-stop yeah so i'll stop i'll, I'll um i'll come in i'll come in every well i'll i'll, I'll have to stay in the water there's quite strict rules uh, around around this but mm -hmm. i'll have a um i'll have a uh, an energy drink and a bit of chocolate now you've done jelly, you've you've done the english channel you are ex yeah. an experienced open open water swimmer um and um that's why you you are you are doing this to raise um raise money for a really good uh, project you've raised um hundred thousand dollars i believe uh two hundred thousand now wow. just over. so um yeah. tell us very quickly where the money is going to yeah so the money is going to a, a project called great art which is run by um the charity o the ocean recovery alliance and it's to um to procure um storm drain covers we're we're, we're um, commissioning some artists from uh, uh from hong kong and um and mainland china who are going to create these plaques that go around storm drains the idea being that people will be more aware and less likely to litter uh, around those areas and of course the the, the the less likely it is that 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 rubbish will be uh will find its way to the ocean great well good luck simon um, Thanks a lot, Enid. Yeah, we'd love to have you back on the show afterwards when once you've <laughs> yeah. recovered. So if you'd like to support Simon, please donate to um, the cause via this website, www.justgiving.com slash Simon hyphen holiday. That's holiday spelled with double L's. We've come to the end of the show. The weather, the thunderstorm warning is in force and there's a special warning that gusts reaching 70 kilometers per hour may affect Hong Kong. It will be mainly cloudy with showers and a few squally thunderstorms in the morning. Maximum temperature about 30 degrees and it will gradually become fine and hot over the weekend. Thank you for listening to Money for Nothing. This is Enid Choi and I'll be back next Monday. The news is next with Janice Wong. The military coup in Thailand has been met with widespread international condemnation. The U.S.